Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Thanks, Kwani. Thanks, Yanni, for leading us in prayer as well. Uh, good morning, family. My name is Reinhardt or Rankies or Ray, whatever you're comfortable with. I am the pastor here at Red Door Church. I realize that a lot of the times I forget to introduce myself, and so it's good to remember that for, for once. And it's great to be able to chat with you guys this morning as we're closing out our series, The Seven Deadly Sins. Um, it's been an amazing one, and uh, we've been able to have different preachers up here and to discuss the different topics and so just maybe a little bit of the lay of the land going forward next weekend we're not going to be here but we are going to have a service at Waterburg Game Lodge we're going to have a once-off where we're going to talk about times of refreshment specifically what it means to rest or to be refreshed in the Lord and so that's going to be pretty special to be able to discuss that as we in and amongst nature and then the weekend after that We're going to be back here on our post, and we're going to do volume two of the Acts series that we've been in, titled Sent, The Message Continues. And so you don't want to miss that. It's going to be good as we dive back into the book of Acts. And so really excited about this morning's text and about this morning's topic. It's interesting that uh, as Kwani read that, I suddenly realized, oh yeah, with all the vaccinations and everything going on and we read about the mark of the beast, I wonder where everyone's thoughts are at. We're not going to be able to chat about everything this morning that's going on in Revelation, but there's a very clear picture being communicated in God's word. And so I'm really excited to be chatting about the topic of anger or the sin of anger and wrath this morning. Before we dive into that, There's been prayed a lot, but let's pray again that God's word will enter our hearts and change our hearts this morning. Father God, we are thankful that we can gather on this brilliantly sunny spring day. After the rain, we see everything is just greener and fresher and good. Um, In a way, we're excited because even though we're tired of a long year, a COVID-filled lockdown year, we're looking towards the end of the year and we want to push and we want to finish strong this year. And so we pray for energy for the rest of the year, but also for this morning, that we don't want to waste the time that has been given to us, that we want to make most of this year, that we want to finish strong in whatever capacity, way, shape, or form, whether it's our jobs or our academics or even if it's just home life and loving and doing, being a good husband and a good wife and good kids. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would do that this morning, that you would energize us through your word. And we know you do this through your spirit. Amen. Do we have any crime and investigation fans this morning here? Do you guys know the crime and investigation channel? Especially shows like Murder Mysteries or there's shows called Snapped or Wives Who Kill, Women Who Kill. I particularly like those. I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with those because it freaks me out, those shows. Don't get me wrong. But it's just interesting to go and see what went wrong in the relationship or what went wrong in people's lives. It's interesting to note the close relationship that love and hate or love and anger have have with one another. It's often spouses who murder one another, 
So if you're in a relationship, be wary. Or, or people in a romantic relationship. That's normally where the anger and the wrath and the hate gets expressed. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you really love someone or something, and you trust that person, and your trust gets betrayed, the inevitable emotion isn't just hurt, but also anger. And in the extreme cases, that unbridled anger, uncontrolled anger, leads people to do things that they normally wouldn't do. Now, I know this is a really extreme example, um, but I think that this example of love and anger isn't too far removed from our everyday context here in South Africa. I mean, we live in a time where people are really, really angry. We live, and, and, and for good reason people are angry, because we're being threatened, and things that we love and enjoy are being threatened, our safety, our security, our future, even just the equality of life is being threatened. And so as a result, people aren't just dissatisfied with their circumstances, we're actually very angry. We're angry about our economy. We're angry about the crime and murder rate. We're angry about gender-based violence. We're angry about the inequality and it's boiling over nationwide and looting and rioting. We're angry at people telling us, why are you so angry? <laughs> and so we're caught between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, if we just continue to give in to this anger, you're going to have an ulcer at the age of 24 and you start arguing with everyone and everything, even on the internet, you're chatting with someone in Scotland and having a fight with them about the inequality in South Africa for some other reason. But if you don't express your anger, if there's no outlet for your angry anger and we bottle it up, you might snap as well or, you know, it might give way to resentment and bitterness and cynicism. And so what do we do? Do we try and just immigrate and run away from the problems? Do we simply ignore them and give in to ignorance? What is the way forward, especially from a Christian perspective? How do we deal with the very real anger that we're feeling every day? And so traditionally, Christians are known to be peaceful people, I think. Jesus, in a Sermon on the Mount, says that blessed are the peacemakers. And throughout this series, The Seven Deadly Sins, we've been discussing and preaching on the various sins and specifically how as we encounter the gospel, it, produ it produces a counter virtue to that sin. So for instance, when we discuss greed, we see how the gospel produces generosity in us. When we discuss envy, we see how the gospel produces contentment from pride to humility, from slothfulness to faithfulness, from lust to love, from gluttony to self-discipline. However, when it comes to anger or wrath, we see that the Bible has a lot to say about this particular subject and especially how God experiences and expresses these very emotions. If you've ever read some of the stories in the Old Testament, you would know that even though God is a God of love, he is definitely a God that experiences anger and wrath. We see even in our passage today that we serve a God that is not just the lovey-dovey God in the children's books that's holding the lamb. No, 
but the one who commands his armies, the one that wars against those who oppose him. Family, this isn't just illustrative language. This or something confined to the Old Testament. What we see is that Jesus himself in the New Testament are at times very angry, pronouncing judgment over some. And it's not just Jesus. We see this in the early church. We see the apostles getting angry with people, even with one another at times. We see the church are dissatisfied and angry about the injustices happening in their society and people exploiting others. When we talk about anger and we read the Bible, the question maybe shouldn't be, should Christians get anger, but rather, are we angry enough? Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says the following in Ephesians 4, verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So what we've got to wrestle this morning with as a Christian community is we need to ask ourselves, not if we should get angry, but rather what should our anger look like? What are the things that we should be angry about? And how do we, in a good, honoring way, express that anger? Unbridled, uncontrolled anger is obviously dangerous. But the anger that the Bible describes is actually something that can lead to much good. And so to be able or to see where we can do this, we go to the only one that is able to experience all of these emotions and yet handle it in a righteous way. And that is the anger of God. And it's pretty well displayed in today's text uh, as we wrestle with the question, why is a loving God so angry? And so, in very dramatic fashion, we see the description in today's text in Revelation 19 of two armies facing one another. On the one side, we have the armies of God led by It's just described as the rider on the white horse. On his side is written the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's called the word of God. His robe is dipped in blood. And of course, this references and shows that this is Jesus, the commander of God's armies. On the other side, we see the enemies of God, servants of the beast, those who oppose God and his will. And so what, what's being communicated to us here this morning, even though it can be frightful language used, I want you to see the very clear picture of these two kingdoms being represented. That's all that it is. You've got the kingdom of God, and often Jesus uses that language of kingdom of God, and the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of the beast. Pretty intense stuff. And so what we're seeing here is not just metaphorical of the last days. No, this is a very real reality and the inevitability of where we're all heading and where our reality is heading towards. God is love. And why is he so angry? Well, precisely because of that, because he is love. And so this is going to sound very weird for a moment, but bear with me and stay with me. The thing that God loves the most is himself and is his own glory and this is the best thing possible for us Isaiah 42 verse 8 
God speaks and he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so what God is saying, and what is very real like this, if anyone else were to talk like this, we would call them prideful. Why? Because you're thinking more of yourself than you ought. This can't be true with God. He is the highest being. He is the highest authority. If he wasn't into himself and loving himself, then he was thereby communicating that there's something else out there deserving of his glory and love. It sits weird in our mouth because we know that that title and that way of speaking can't be applied to anything or anyone else in this reality. God should be about his own glory. If he were to share his glory, he would say that he's not worth all the glory. God is first and foremost a God of love and he loves himself and he loves his glory and he does not share his glory. And now imagine trying to steal this magnificent God's glory. The one who not only deserves everything, owns everything, created everything, but the one who has all the glory. The moment you try and take some of God's glory, it means it communicates to God that you believe that God isn't worth it. The moment that you think some of the glory should be diverted away from God, you're in essence saying, I don't think you're really God. I don't really think you're in control. I think you should share your glory. And God's holiness, his awesomeness almost compels him in his wrath to destroy whomsoever dares to do this. Because if God doesn't destroy, if he doesn't get angry, if he doesn't get wrathful, then again it says about him that he's not really God. So God cannot be anything else but himself. And his righteous self is one that will defend and guard his own honor and glory. Now, scary into this scenario, this is what happened when we sinned and rebelled against them in the Garden of Eden. Our ancestors and Adam and Eve turned their back on God and told him, we're equal with you. We want to be like you. We want some of that cake. And what happened is this ignited God's wrath. And so make no mistake, family, any sin, any sin, ever committed was first and foremost not committed against another person or not committed against another thing. It is always against God, always against the holy, glorious God. And every and any sin communicates, I don't want to subject myself to your rule and authority. Any sin, no matter what you think, where you think it's a victimless sin, Nobody even knows about this sin, which you're in essence communicating in your heart and to God is saying that I think I can do better, that I think I deserve more. I want to be God of my own life. And I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading that terrifying picture in Revelation 19. There's no middle ground. It's two kingdoms. I think often what we think is, um, we hear people saying this a lot. It's like, I'm not really part of this fight. Like, I'm not necessarily for Christ, but I'm not against them. You know, so I'm just a pacifist in this war. So you guys go at it. I'm going to sit in the side and just see what happens. But, but I'm not really part of this war. I'm the third person, the third party. We, we try to elevate ourselves. I'm just a good person. 
not necessarily a Christian, but I'm a good guy. I'm okay. And family, there is no room for that on the battlefield. Um, God is very blunt on this point, hence me being so blunt. But you are either for him or you're against him. And Romans 1.18 says it the following, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that truth that God is the one that deserves everything. For what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. And so what is it that we should be angry about as Christians? Well, it's very clear what angers God. God is angered when people turn their back on him. And similarly, that should in a way anger us today as well. When people abuse the truth, it talks about leading people astray, the false prophets. And so when people abuse the truth of God, that should anger us. When people exploit the helpless and the vulnerable, it is people rebelling against the good rule of God that should anger us. When people destroy their communities by only living for themselves, that should anger us. There are always only two kingdoms at play. And we should be angry when God's kingdom and God's name is being defamed. That's the thing that should stir and get our anger boiling. However, family, if I'm honest with myself, I don't, maybe there's some of you this morning, but that's traditionally not why I get angry. I'm not that angry when God's kingdom is attacked. I get angry when my kingdom and my comfort gets threatened. When something happens the way I don't like it or the way that I wanted it. When the car swerves in front of me. When there's traffic, I'm like, don't these people know who I am? Don't they know how precious my time is or the meeting that I'm going to? And I get angry. Why? Because Reinhardt's kingdom is being threatened at that moment. When my wife or kids don't respond in the way that I want to, I get upset. When I feel shame coming my way, I get upset because my kingdom suddenly is being put in danger. Even sometimes when the other person is doing something that is genuinely wrong, my anger is not a righteous anger because I'm not that concerned about God's kingdom in that moment and I'm more concerned about mine and how this is impacting me and my comfort and my security and what I want. And so even in this, even though I know I'm kind of part of God's kingdom and I want to fight for that, I still have the two kingdoms at mind where I'm constantly turning away from wanting God to have the honor in his kingdom and going to my own and trying to serve myself. But we see when Jesus got angry, it was never because his own comfort was being threatened. Rather, Jesus when he saw injustice, he was compelled to act because it was an honor of God's kingdom. We see this when they were turning the temple into a den of robbers. Jesus knew that they were exploiting people, and so he got angry. And the text says that his, he was fueled by a zeal for God's kingdom and God's house, and it compelled him to act. We see that Jesus, when he saw the marginalized being exploited by the religious right, he got angry. And he pronounced judgment. 
We see that Jesus got seriously hot and angry when he see, saw that people were misleading others with false truths. And so we, walking in the example of Jesus, need to be agents like this. We need to experience anger, but it should compel us to act in a way differently than we have before. We need to be a people who are zealous for the kingdom of God and not for our own kingdoms. We need a change of heart. And the only place, family, <laughs> where we can have that, where we can have our hearts and the way that we experience anger changed is at the foot of the cross. The only way we, we can change our anger from a self-centered, self-serving anger to a God-honoring anger is to first see once again the wrath of God that was first burning hot against us. All of us have infringed on God's holiness and he is righteously angry with us. However, in his overflow of his love, his anger compels him to action. It's the catalyst for God to do something and he sends Jesus, the rightful king, to come pay the price that we should have paid to create peace. On the cross, we see Jesus cry out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That phrase is put in there so that we can see that in that moment, God is pouring out his wrath on Jesus. He left Jesus alone. And all the anger, all the wrath that should have come to us is now poured out on Jesus. Many a time throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, the image is used of a cup filled with God's anger and God's wrath. And God constantly talks to his enemies and saying, the time will come when you'll have to drink that cup empty of my wrath and anger. Family, later we're going to experience communion. And that's going to be such a good picture of this. But this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took that cup of God's anger of wrath and he drank it empty. Every last drop of God's wrath was poured out on him. And so that's why, in light of that, we see in Romans 5.1. Romans 1, it says that God's wrath is on all mankind. Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to our sin, the God of love didn't just look the other way. No, he looks at Christ and he sees how his anger is satisfied on the cross. Having peace with God now, we have been forgiven. We are now welcomed into the family. We are now accepted we are part of the kingdom of God. And the, the more we dive into this, the more we understand its implications, it starts to change us. Maybe not all at once. It's a lifetime of understanding this beauty of the gospel. What it does, it definitely brings heart change to every one of us. So when we constantly give into a selfish anger, we need to remind ourselves which kingdom are we fighting for. Sometimes we, we, we struggle with amnesia. <laughs> we still think that I've got to make it on my own. I've got to make my own name. And so I'm fighting for my own kingdom. I'm fighting for myself to count. I'm fighting for acceptance, forgetting that we've already been accepted. I'm not that I'm not trying to make my own name. No, I'm the forgiven one, the accepted one, the one that has already bowed the knee in submission, standing behind the rider on the white horse. 
And if that is so, if that is truly my identity, it should change the thing that I love, desire, and hence the things that I get angry about. As our desires gets changed, our responses to it gets changed as well. So our anger gets a makeover. We might still be angry about the same things, but it changes the complexion of how we approach those same situations. And so we're going to get very practical in a moment, but I wanted us to see that anger in and of itself isn't bad. In fact, God uses it for good. That when we are angry or when something that we love gets threatened, that we actually do something about it. A lot of the times we can be so passive at what's going on around us. But anger actually fuels the blood that you get up and do something about it. We've seen what we should get angry about, God's kingdom. Now it's a question of how do we respond to that. I mean, on a practical note, uh, the thing that makes anger good is when it physiologically and emotionally gets the blood pumping and it compels us into action. It's a catalyst for a reaction, a catalyst to help us actually do something, do things that we actually believe. Anger is like rocket fuel. I mean, in the right context, it provides propul- propulsion, it provides forward momentum. In the wrong context, it destroys and ruins people. When it's centered around my kingdom, anger will never have the right outlet. It will destroy you, it will consume you. It will eat you up inside. It will lead to bitterness and cynicism. It will steal your joy and peace from your life and leave you empty. Ultimately, it will lead to wrath. It can and will have disastrous consequences. However, in the right context, we see that it actually helps us to do something about what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. So, when I see the amount of corruption happening around us, we should get angry because we, we know that this isn't how God intended things to be. We know this isn't why God appointed certain leaders. He appointed leaders to serve. And so we should be angry about that. But again, if it's a gong, uh, kingdom-centered anger, what it should do is lead us to action. And that first action should always be prayer. Are we praying? Are we praying for change? Does the anger get you up in the morning to actually get you on your knees? Do you actually try to intercede for the people leading this country? When we don't pray, we are either not angry enough or we're angry for the wrong reasons. Are we praying that God would intervene or are we simply angry because this inconveniences me? And my kingdom. We need to respond with intense prayer and not merely moaning about this around the bright fire. I'm, I'm sure no one here has experienced this, but when your child throws a tantrum in the middle of pick and pay and screams at the top of their lungs, you are faced with an immediate decision. Because in that moment, your kingdom is being attacked. You feel shame. You feel the eyes of the people around us. You get angry. I'm embarrassed. But anger actually forces you to deal with the situation right there and then. What our anger should do 
is rather be more concerned with God's kingdom. And God's kingdom in that moment is realizing, well, here's a sinner in front of me that I'm called to disciple. I want to be concerned about this child's heart right here. I want to be concerned about their discipleship. The only thing that's actually going to get you to be present in that moment and not simply want to drag the child out there and give them your own wrath is actually to be compelled by God's anger to saying, I want to desperately disciple you. I want to endure the shame and the embarrassment that I'm feeling right now. Be present in the moment. Have rather a heart to disciple your children. And don't get me wrong, I'm not getting this right every time. I feel the embarrassment a lot of the times. But my concern should be greater than my own kingdom. Our concern and our anger with inequality in our society means that we shouldn't just write online about this, but it should compel us to act, to go out and serve to try to affect change, to start loving, to start reversing what has been done. Our anger isn't just with society and where people go wrong and when I've been wrong, but it's actually also with the brokenness of this world. This past Friday, I attended a funeral of a friend who passed away in his mid-30s because of cancer, leaving behind a wife and two young daughters. And this angers me. I am furious. I'm livid because of this broken world. That last enemy, death and sickness, that still needs to be defeated. But what my anger should do and my absolute despondence in that moment is it should point me back to Revelation 19 where I see the rider on the white horse finally defeating all of God's enemy. My anger should make me want to go do business with God so that as I interact with God, as I express my anger, I'm filled once again with hope because I see that this isn't the ultimate reality. This isn't the final chapter. But if you don't allow your anger to actually help you do something, go somewhere, talk with God, then we're just being too passive about it and we're, our outlets are going to be destructive. Ultimately, anger should remind us that there is a God that will execute his judgment. That a God that will pronounce his judgment on this world. In Jude 9, when it writes about the archangel Michael contending with the devil. And as he was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. I mean, this is with, with, um, with the devil, so I, I thought you were allowed to do this. But rather, what Michael said is, the Lord rebuke you. And what's being communicating theologically here is, even as we get angry, even as we get frustrated, we know who's the one that's going to ultimately bring the judgment. It's not our job. I know, we want to be those <laughs> agents of wrath and judgment sometimes. We want to take it into our own hands, but we know who is the righteous judge. And so rather, we are called to trust and really rely on this God that he is righteous. He will bring justice in this world or the next. If we don't allow our anger to point us back to God, then it becomes self-centered again. And it will lead us wanting to take matters into our own hands. 
And ironically, instead of actually destroying those enemies, we end up destroying ourselves. The only thing that can restrain our anger, our selfishness, is to be encouraged through the gospel. And that's why we regularly, not just in sermons, remember or remind one another, but why God gave signs of his justice and judgment. Father, we, we are thankful that you are concerned with justice. That you're not turning a blind eye to what's happening in our reality and what's happening in our world right now. And Father, we have to confess, even as Yanni prayed this, that most of the time I'm actually just concerned about how this is impacting me. How your kingdom is benefiting me. How everything is serving my will. And yet, Father, we know that living for your kingdom is ultimately the best thing for us. And so, Father, what we need is perspective. What we need is a change of heart. And we pray for that in the gospel, that continually we would see the goodness that we have in God. That we would see that we have actually angered a righteous God and we deserve death, yet what we get is acceptance and liberty and peace in Jesus. And so we pray for that now. We pray that as we eat communion, that something supernatural would happen. That that our hearts, in, even in tasting the physical elements, would maybe believe more the truth of Jesus Christ right now. We pray that our anger would be ignited by the thing that we love, which is your kingdom. And we pray that that anger would compel us to action in prayer, in serving, in loving, in missions. A world that is lost without you. And all of this is made possible because of you, Jesus. You who did not despise the shame, but set your eyes on the future glory of God. Enduring the cross. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen.